Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories. It's been a beautiful week so far, and I feel like we've launched into summer. A wonderful time to go and explore history all around you and it really is everywhere. Hidden Histories is all about that so if you have any great areas around you that you'd suggest I visit I would love to hear from you. You can tweet me at Helen H. Carr or email me via my website www.helenhcarr.com. Now for today's podcast I'm speaking with Dr Laura Mackay. Lauren specialises in 16th century diplomacy and the eternally popular Tudors. Everyone loves the Tudors. I'm a medievalist myself, but I I see why. Henry's wives, and in particular Anne Boleyn, are household names. 
but Lauren quite rightly wants to draw attention to lesser known Berlins too. So she's going to talk to me all about the hidden history of the Berlin men. In the nature of hidden histories, Lauren will also tell me exactly where you can go to explore these histories yourself. Now, this was a Skype interview, as Lauren currently lives in Edinburgh, so there might be a little disturbance, but I hope that doesn't affect your enjoyment of the podcast. Now, don't forget, if you're enjoying Hidden Histories, please rate five stars and subscribe. Also, spread the word. Welcome to Hello, how are you? <laughs> it's good to have you on the podcast over Skype because you're all the way in Edinburgh yeah. and I'm all the yeah. way south. <laughs> Thank I'm, you for having me. Pleasure. I'm glad we managed to find a time. Yeah. And we were sort of having a little chat just before um, we started recording about how interesting this subject is and how relevant it is really because of all of the women who didn't receive any attention in the sort of grand stage of history the Berlin women really did and it's actually the Berlin men that have sort of seemingly been lost isn't that right that's right it's peculiar actually because we're looking at two males in a male dominated society who have been completely eclipsed by their female counterparts I, I really can't think of uh, many other cases where where that is the case in fact so that was what really interested me in actually doing the Berlins as a, just as a family unit, but also with, with the men separately, uh, because they do have a story that needed to be told and, and quite a separate independent narrative from Anne Berlin. And I felt that because they uh, have been so eclipsed by Anne that we needed to really bring out that story and not forget them and not let them be sort of, uh, you know, uh, sent, relegated to the, the margins of history. Yeah, because in in a sense, is it, it was it George Berlin that um, was seemingly a pawn in the whole melt in the whole sort of a downfall of of Anne, and there's a lot of controversy attached to his character in itself. Yes, that's right. I always hesitate to use the word pawns when it comes to the Berlins because we do have this kind of a it's very negative connotations as if mm. someone else is pulling the strings. And for some reason, it seems to be uh, Thomas Berlin is always some, somehow the puppet master uh, and, and at least a, uh, some, uh, someone who was complicit in the downfalls of his children, when, of course, the evidence uh, doesn't support that in any way. But yes, uh, George and Anne Berlin, you know, their fates are so intrinsically linked. Uh, and uh, of course, as were their violent fates. So it, it's very interesting with George that uh, we, we really don't ever see him just uh, just his, his own story. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, exactly. That's... It's always wrapped up with Anne, isn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, and, I, and I think, in a way, I think it's hard because George's career really hadn't, had only really begun sort of 1533 when Anne was at the very peak, you know, during her coronation. So we don't really know what kind of ambassador, a diplomat, or a courtier George Berlin would have really become. He never got that chance. So he sort of had that unfulfilled potential, a, a narrative cut short. So, I, I mean, the Tudors are one... They, I mean, I think they are the most popular and, yes. as you say, oversaturated periods of English history. 
And what made, I mean, Amberlynn has already been studied over and over. What made you choose this family in spite of that? I've always been a fan of Anne Boleyn, and we are going back quite a few years now. And I, I came to the period, I think, through Anne Boleyn. Uh, I think as so, as so many young women and young girls do. But it was really the, the letter uh, that Anne Boleyn wrote to her father. There's a very famous letter. And it was written from the court of the Archduchess Margaret of Austria when she was, I would say, maybe between 10 and 12. And it's an extraordinary letter in, in what it tells us about Anne Boleyn as, 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 a, as a person, because we don't really have a lot of evidence pertaining to Anne's mentality, her character, her personality. And in this letter, you can really get a sense of a young girl anxious to please her father. She cares deeply about what he thinks. She's anxious to do the family proud. But for me, it's not just extraordinary in what this says about Anne, but what this letter actually says about Thomas Boleyn. Because this letter has survived the centuries, and it's very well preserved. And we don't really think about that, but we have to wonder, well, how did it survive the centuries? Well, it's because Thomas Boleyn kept that letter. He kept a letter from his 12-year-old daughter for his entire life. It was found amongst his personal possessions after his death, and it has been preserved for posterity. Now, upon reading that letter, I started to wonder, well, what kind of man would keep a letter like this? And then I started to wonder, okay, so who was Thomas Boleyn? Because I know what the, the traditional narrative tells us about Thomas Boleyn, the, the scheming pimp, the man who sacrificed his daughter to the royal bedchamber. But this letter suggested something entirely different. And that was the thread I took up and I began to unwind an entire narrative that actually showed a very different Thomas Boleyn from what the the history has always suggested. Okay, so going back pre pre Anne, pre George, yeah, um, pre Henry, really. I, who who was Thomas Boleyn? I mean, and that that's actually the great question because Thomas Boleyn's career began during Henry the Seventh's reign. Uh, he was a man from Norfolk, from the the town of Norwich. I'm not Norwich. I should say Blickling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his father is actually buried in Norwich Cathedral. He's the son of a merchant, but he's the grandson of the mayor of a mayor of London, Geoffrey Boleyn. And he's he's young, he's ambitious, but his career starts uh, in the army, in the king's army, during the reign of Henry the Seventh. And he progresses. He is present at every major event in Henry the Seventh's reign: christenings, funerals, marriages. He escorts Catherine of Aragon up. Uh, from Portsmouth up to London for her wedding to Prince Arthur. He is uh, present for Prince Arthur's uh, funeral. He's also present for Elizabeth of York's funeral and Henry VII's funeral, and he is knighted. He's made a knight of the bath at Henry VIII's coronation. So this is a man who has been circling the court for quite some time, uh, long before Anne Boleyn was over on the radar. In fact, of course, before Henry VIII was even king. Uh, so that's really his career trajectory, and it's in the early years of Henry VIII that he is actually uh, tapped on the shoulder, as I, as I like to say it, by uh, Richard Fox, the chief architect of Henry VII and Henry VIII's uh, diplomatic, uh, diplomacy, basically. Um, and he's sent on his first mission at the age of 35 on a very important mission to the court of uh, such as Margaret of, in the Netherlands and to actually negotiate a very large uh, peace treaty, but also uh, to agree that uh, they will all go to war <laughs> against France. So 
Thomas Boleyn, uh, decades before Anne Boleyn, he is what he becomes one of Cardinal Wolsey's right-hand men. Uh, he becomes a, a real fixture at court. He's just one. He's known as one of the most reliable, trustworthy, and skilled ambassadors of the court. So his career is impressive. And by the time Henry the, Henry VIII comes to the throne, you know, even uh, in the first ten years, he has become an indispensable member of the Tudor court. So that's so interesting because my really menial perception of him thus far was that he was quite it was really through Anne and the rise of Anne that he even found position in court in the first place I think that really goes back to uh, the 18th and 19th conservative historians who airbrushed history a little bit I think they they wanted to restore Henry VIII's reputation a little bit and sort of move away from the tyrannical monster uh, to something a little bit more romantic. And Anne kind of became a, a romantic victim. And this is a story that needs villains. Mm. And I think what happened is that Thomas Boleyn, uh, I think historians sort of looked at Anne and said, well, who, who put this woman in this position in the first place and eyes turned to Thomas Boleyn, which is not actually fair in any sense. It, it robs Anne Boleyn of her political ingenuity, but it also lays, uh, you know, points the finger at Thomas Boleyn rather unfairly. And I think we've, we kind of have uh, ignored uh, Thomas Boleyn's, uh, his career and all of the years in, in, in dedicated service to the crown. It's just sort of been swept away. It's been dismissed as unimportant. And when we do that, we, we uh, basically... Uh, what would you say? I, I would say we form a, a, a false narrative in a way. It, it's a story that that you know is not grounded in evidence. It's it's removing a large faction of the evidence that survives. It is. <laughs> I think it's to really fit with to fit with the narrative of you know uh, the, a sac- you know daughters being sacrificed to the royal bedchamber, Anne and Mary Boleyn as pawns. Who is driving this? It must be their father. It fits that narrative. Yeah. But that's not the right. That's not the correct narrative. So Anne and Mary and George, they're they're all born to Thomas and uh, their mother was... um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, that's right. And um, so they're born. And what what was his relationship with his children? And how did that develop as they became more um, immersed within, within the court? It's difficult because we don't have a great deal of textual evidence. We don't have correspondence between Thomas and his son. We don't have correspondence between Thomas and Mary or even Thomas and Anne, apart from that one letter. Mm. All we can really go on is uh, where he placed his children. So, of course, placing Anne Boleyn at the court of the Archduchess Margaret, that was an incredible position to secure for his young daughter. He obviously uh, pulled in a favour. He pulled in a few strings. He used his influence. He wanted the best for his daughter. And I think that's quite evident in uh, how he positioned her. Uh, with Mary Boleyn, the fact that uh, she married Will, uh, William Carey, with a very well-to-do family uh, and, and very well-respected, and a family with, with whom the Boleyns were quite uh, quite tied and, and quite united as well. So I think placing her in that marriage with a, with a very respectable and a very up-and-coming family and an ambitious family also showed where he wanted to place his children. Now, George Boleyn... 
is very difficult. I, I believe he is the, the youngest of the family. All we can really say about George is that he clearly wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. And we can see that they are very close, especially in their first, uh, in George's first ambassadorial mission, where he's in, in Paris at the Sorbonne University, trying to persuade uh, the university to, to vote in Henry's favor. This is, this is much later during the divorce crisis. And Thomas Boleyn has to step in and actually assist his son, which he does, because I think George Boleyn uh, was in over his head. But the fact that Thomas Boleyn would, would rush in and, and, and uh, do all he could to actually to help his son, I think, speaks volume about their relationships. Unfortunately, that's all we have to go on is just to be, you know, these little glimpses of evidence mm -hmm. rather than actual correspondence between the family members. And what about at court? How did his position at court develop? Well, so uh, we, uh, we actually, we know that, of course, uh, in 1525, uh, he was made uh, Viscount Rochford. Now, this had nothing really to do with Mary Boleyn or Anne Boleyn. This is just before their time. Uh, this is due to his years of dedicated service because he, he had actually gone on quite a few very important missions by them. He was also, as I said, Wolsey's right-hand man, and he had been very instrumental in uh, a very a very unpopular tax called the uh, Amicable Grant, which Wolsey had masterminded. And uh, Thomas Boleyn actually was, was, in, was in danger uh, during, during this period when he was in his, in his counties of Kent and Middlesex trying to actually, um, to, you know, to actually get the, the, the people of, throughout the counties to actually pay this tax. So for this duty, he was, yes, he was uh, made uh, Viscount Rochford. Uh, so he, he was elevated. He was actually... Uh, given these kinds of peerages, before Anne Boleyn and Mary Boleyn came on the scene. Now, we tend to link uh, at least one of these elevations with Mary Boleyn, but the timing doesn't seem right. And we also even link uh, a naming of a ship uh, with Mary Boleyn. It was, it, the ship was called the Mary Boleyn, except that we do know uh, that, and, and of course with people saying that this was a mark of favour towards Thomas Boleyn having the ship named after his daughter as Henry's mistress. But we do actually, well, it's, I researched it and we, we do actually have um, in the records a French ship called the Mary of Boulogne being actually uh, taken to England. So it was actually uh, taken from another uh, from the French army and actually brought to England. Uh, but certainly by the time Anne Boleyn becomes Henry's mistress, uh, the real only elevation we can we can sort of say perhaps or at least suggest perhaps that he was rising in favour because of his daughter as well would be the earldom of Wiltshire. Mm -hmm. But before then, yeah, he had plenty of accolades heaped upon him for his good service and duty to the crown. Okay, and on the contrary, when things started to go pear-shaped, how did that affect, yeah. did that affect him at all? It's difficult. I mean, yes, of course it affected him. And I think because the, the, there is such an emotional element to the executions of Anne and George, uh, I think history historians have tended to look at Thomas and say, well, you know, he didn't he didn't fall with his children. He wasn't necessarily disgraced. But then again, the way that one has to look at it is Cromwell, Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII are purging the 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 uh, the inner circle of the young men who surrounded Anne Boleyn and Anne Boleyn herself. Thomas Boleyn was the old generation. He wasn't a threat. Now, of course, he lost two children, and that we have to allow him grief, and we have to we have to uh, assume that, of course, his reaction was one of grief. He did go into exile, and it was self-imposed exile for several months. Uh, but of course, 
being a peer of the realm, you can't hide for very long, you have your duties to perform. So when Jane Seymour actually gave birth to the long-awaited Prince Edward VI, Thomas Boleyn was at court for the christening. Now, this has been seen as a sign that Thomas Boleyn, in the words of one historian, was trying to worm his way up the greasy pole. And this is disingenuous because Thomas Boleyn was a peer of the realm and it was his duty to be there. And rather than ask how could Thomas Boleyn attend such an event, mm. I think we should really ask how could Henry VIII have invited him yeah. to such an event? But we don't tend to blame Henry. We tend to blame Thomas Boleyn. Uh, and Thomas Boleyn was instrumental in uh, subduing a rebellion in his home county. He was also on the trial, uh, he sat as, uh, as a peer on the trial of, of Robert Ask during the pilgrimage of, Gay of Grace. Uh, so he, he was definitely, he was as active as I think he could manage. And But I think in a way he almost did the, the minimum amount that he, that he could. I think he really wanted to spend his days in Hever, uh, quite frankly, in exile and in peace. Yeah, and Hever Castle is, um, that was the, the home of the, of the Boleyn family, wasn't it? It was, though, interestingly enough, and, I, and it's funny that we, we tend to, of course, associate Hever as the romantic castle and the home of Anne Boleyn, but the Boleyns were not a family of Kent. They were actually proud East Anglians. And to really understand the Boleyn family, you actually have to go uh, to Norfolk, to the little village of Seoul, which is, which is where uh, the Boleyn ancestors are all buried, to Blickling, where there's a lovely church where there are more uh, Boleyn relatives buried. That's really Boleyn heartland. When you go to Norwich Cathedral, uh, the Boleyns paid extensively uh, for all sorts of refurbishments for Norwich Cathedral. And William Boleyn, Thomas Boleyn's father, is actually buried there. And there's the Boleyn Chantry Chapel. So, yes, Hebrew is a very important part, but it comes it comes a little bit later into the Boleyn story. Okay, because, yeah, Hever is the the place where people most popularly associate with Anne Boleyn. It is. It's a big yes. tourist attraction. But, so if you're looking for the hidden history behind Anne Boleyn and by Thomas Boleyn and George Go Boleyn, east. Go <laughs> east to go to Norfolk. Go to Norfolk. I actually find, and I maybe Hever Castle wouldn't like me saying it, but I find there is such a, a link to the Boleyns there, such a connection, and you can really feel it. Even though Blickling Hall no longer exists as, as, as it was, the grounds are still there. The church next to the to the estate is still there. And as I said, you go to Seoul, which is a not even a one pub or one horse town, but just really just a little road with a church. That is the town. But it's exquisite because this church was actually built by four very important families of Seoul, the Berlin's being one of them. So that's where you really feel the connection to the family and to their to their lineage as well. Okay. So let's talk about let's talk about George Boleyn. So he was obviously so wrapped up in all of the controversy surrounding his sister. But who was he? Oh, that's a million dollar question. Because <laughs> as you say, he, he like was so wrapped up in this. Is, this is the this is the problem with George. I find it very difficult to to understand George the way uh, I understand Thomas because. He comes, to, he comes into the sources so late uh, in the Boleyn story. Uh, we don't really know much about his, his early life, only that he's obviously well-educated. We don't know if he went overseas you know, for his education, though it's unlikely. Uh, and, of course, all of his uh, ambassadorial career is all tied up in Henry's divorce matter. So we never really get a sense of, uh, especially 
when he first began his first ambassadorial mission, this raised a lot of eyebrows. The uh, the French ambassador Jean Dubelay was uh, he was very skeptical about George Berlin's uh, talents as an ambassador, and he re and he referred to George Berlin quite uh, derisively as Le Petit Prince, you know, the little prince, as if he was not going to be an ambassador of any worth. He was just there because of his sister. So what I what I can sort of understand about George is this is a young man who is determined to make his mark in, in the world, to follow in his father's footsteps, but he is constantly shackled to his sister's cause. So I think he struggles to be taken seriously. Or, you know, he goes to foreign courts, uh, much like his father did, but he is always seen as Anne Boleyn's brother. And I think that, I think there's a real, almost like an identity crisis with George Boleyn. Uh, and even in his letters, you just... You feel the frustration. He's a little unguarded, I think, in some of his letters, and we don't really have a lot of them, uh, but he he doesn't really understand how to sort of uh, to put up a, a facade, sort of wear, you know, a mask of dissimulation, much like his father did. His father was incredibly talented as an ambassador, but George Berlin has no qualms writing to a, an acquaintance that his French is, you know, his Latin isn't very good. His French is fine, but his Latin is quite terrible. And please don't write to me in Latin again because I, I'm not very good at it. These kinds of things you wouldn't really expect an ambassador, a Polish ambassador, to write to an acquaintance. So you do get a sense of this uh, bit of a. Uh, he, he can be quite rash and he can be quite brash as well. So I think there's, there's a charm, and, and where people will say arrogance with George Berlin, I think it's just it's a charm and, it, and, and it's youth. And it's this idea of, you know, of, of trying to really make his mark in the world and form a sense of identity. Gina, there's an element of naivety as well involved. Absolutely. I, I think, and because of course it goes both ways, well, of course he can be frustrated because people don't take him seriously. But of course there must have been a sense of well, how easy it was to just come into this particular career because of who he was. And that, of course, is it, it's undeniable. He was so well connected. He was part of the inner circle. He was born into that. So, yes, absolutely, naivety. Okay, and so he um, was he very close to Anne, or is that something that we're still not sure about? I think there's enough evidence to point to a very, a very deep and very close bond. Uh, as certainly a very uh, a, a proper sibling bond, brother and sister, of course, absolutely. Uh, they're very alike, and, and they're quite different from their father in terms of their their uh, aesthetics, in terms of their their taste in art and culture, and uh, and certainly in literature and spirituality. They are the next generation, so they're far they're a little less conservative than their father. I think that they're, they're very much they very much have the same taste. So, for example, George Berlin. Uh, translated and actually created these beautiful uh, 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 texts for his for, for Anne Boleyn based on uh, Jacques Lefebvre uh, uh, and it, those French spiritual texts. And he actually did this himself, and he's with his own money and and presented them to his sister. So I think that really says something about their relationship. Mm. Now, of course, their relationship is twisted into something ungodly, Sorted. of course, yeah, in 1536. Yeah. But I think it. They were able to do that because these two were so inseparable and were were so very close. Even if we don't really have much correspondence between the two, uh, certainly there's enough evidence just based on these texts and certainly, uh, you know, uh, the, the amount of time they spent together and even just uh, mentions in, in other in the correspondence written by other people about how close and, you know, please recommend me to your sister and please bring me to your sister. I think it, it definitely speaks towards a very close relationship. 
And how did he how did he respond to the downfall of Anne and how he became so wrapped up in that? I mean, that must have been extraordinarily traumatic for him. Is there any evidence or um, any indication as to what his what his response was? Well, of course, George is executed along along with his sister, of course. He's executed two days before her. Now, I think because it happened so swiftly, we, we don't really have a sense of, of, of what any of them really felt, I think. I think what is extraordinary about George, though, is, in, is when he's actually at his trial, he's incredibly defiant. Uh, and he can see how how uh, rel- uh, ridiculous and absurd these charges are, but he can also see what game is actually at play here. He can see who is moving all of the strings, and he understands that he is just a pawn in this particular game and that the, inevit- the, the outcome will be inevitable. And I think there is a sense of resignation there. So at his trial, he's asked not to read out a particular comment they had once made about Henry VIII being uh, quite infertile and, and, and being quite impotent. And he's told not to read this out in court lest he, of course, humiliate the king. And defiantly, he reads it out and says, well, no, I didn't say it. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. But also, uh, even at his trial, he's very concerned about all the people to whom he owes money. He wants to make sure that his debts are paid. He wants to go, uh, he wants to leave this world uh, with his debts repaid and all in good order. So I think that speaks a lot about his, his, his character and his, uh, his personal identity. But certainly, I, I know there, there must have been disbelief, but also, as I said, resignation. He knew he was not going to get out of this alive. Yeah. Was there... So very famously, there is um, evidence of Anne Boleyn's last days and, and hours. What about George? Is there anything that survives of that time? Unfortunately not. We... Uh... Uh, you know, because in the tower, they're not being really watched. It's Anne Boleyn who is being watched because she's the main prize. She's who they want to, you know, who, the reputation that needs to be tarnished, that she's the one whose name has to be absolutely blackened, whereas George and the other men, they're just collateral damage. So we don't know what he was doing in the tower in these last days. However, there is that lovely... Uh, poignant carving in uh, Beauchamp Tower in the Tower of London, which I absolutely believe George Boleyn carved because it's the falcon. It's his sister's falcon. Uh, it's the, the Boleyn falcon, and it doesn't have a crown, and it's, it's quite bare, but it's quite a lovely, melancholic tribute, I believe, to his sister. But it's not just Anne Boleyn's falcon. It's actually the butler falcon. That's, that's his father's family's falcon, which was passed down through to Anne. So I think this is a lovely tribute to his family, to whom he had been so dedicated. I was wondering if you'd mentioned that, because I was always, there's always sort of contrary. Is it, was it George Boleyn? Was it not George Boleyn? But... It has well, been else, generally attributed. Exactly. Who exactly. Else do, who else would it have meant so much to? I think no, we can't definitively say so, but we can reasonably assume he was the one with the most motivation to carve it. Yeah, which so and you're right. It's so melancholy. It's such a powerful. Um, it's such a powerful sort of vignette, isn't it? Just this image of him yeah. in his last moments carving that, and it demonstrates the dedication to his sister and his family, as you say. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, the the Boleyns were an incredibly powerful family by the at their at their peak, but also as you've demonstrated with um, with earlier on as well with with Thomas Boleyn. Um, but we also we do tend to link their rise with Anne, 
And we see that with that, they are very ambitious and ruthless, which you've also sort of quashed some of those yeah. rumours. But do you think that that was demonstrative more of the of the period rather from from them in particular? Of course not. I mean, it's funny when when we when we associate the Berlins with with ambition, ambition becomes a dirty word, and yet no other family. Uh, is really judged in the same way. Of course they were ambitious. Everything revolved around the monarch and the patronage and what you and what you could glean from your family. That was how you rose in your station. That was how you you better you became better by each generation. That was how you improved upon your family generation by generation. Of course you were uh, wholly dependent on king. And of course, everyone had to be ambitious. That's just that's just how you got ahead. But with with the Berlins, it, it becomes a sort of salutary lesson of what happens when a family rises above their station. And it's again, it's a very disingenuous accusation because they were just one of many families at court who were rising. Now, Thomas Berlin, uh, he really, you know, he had a lot to work with with his family. His family already had great foundations. William Berlin, his father, was very well respected. He said, as I said, his grandfather. Was was the mayor of London. So he came from good stock already. And he was one of those men, one of the new men of Henry VII's reign. And he was young and ambitious, of course, but he was reliable, he was intelligent, he danced, he hunted, he fought, he jousted. He was the kind of man that Henry VII liked. And of course, when Henry VIII came to the throne, he was equal, he was still that, that, that perfect courtier. He really embodied the ideal courtier. So... To be ambitious, of course, he had to be ambitious, but it, there, there's more than that with the Berlins. You know, it's 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 about bettering yourself, as I said, upon each generation, and that's what Thomas Berlin set out to do. That's why he educated his his, his daughters and his sons so well. It wasn't to slip them into the king's bed. That wasn't the goal. It was so they could make fantastic matches and and continue the Berlin the Berlin dignified line. One of the um, so one of the places that people have come across the Berlin men is actually most commonly in fiction, isn't it? Um, yes. So the wonderful Wolf Hall, which was just brilliant, and and also some other some other fiction, some other texts, some other TV uh, series, movies. Um, how do you think our perception of them has changed through that? I do. It's funny though. Uh, Thinking through all the the fictional portrayals, the characters all change. In the Tudors, the TV series of the Tudors, Cromwell is, uh, he, he, you do he's quite likable, but he's also he can be quite vile and he, he he's he's a bit of a of a snake. But then you go to Wolf Hall and mm. oh, what a what a character! The Boleyns never change. Thomas Boleyn is always the villain. He is always that pimp. He is always darkly ambitious. And George Boleyn, you know, as uh, I think Hilary Mantel said, or I think she had Cromwell say in Wolf Hall, what is the point of George Boleyn? And I, I have seen this reflected in various, t- you know, TV's uh, uh, interpretations and on film. He's really just a pretty ornament of court, but not, but not of much use. Or of course, in the TV, in the Tudors, I mean, he's he's something something else entirely, and it, it, it's very interesting how they sort of twisted his character. 
I think this has a, a, a stemmed from the older historical interpretations. The Victorian uh, historians certainly did a lot to marginalize the Boleyns and really uh, forget about, you know, really bring out these 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 very twisted kind of narratives. And that makes for great fiction, I believe. As I said, this is a story that needs villains. Now, I think the problem is now, especially with, with uh, fictional portrayals like Wolf Hall, a lot of people get their history from fiction. Yeah. And it's a little unnerving that that's how it's actually happening. But I see it a lot. I, you know, people watch the, the Showtime series of the Tudors and they just assume that's how Thomas Boleyn was. Uh, we have in Wolf Hall, you know, these wonderful uh, depictions of Thomas Boleyn as I think Cromwell says, you know, uh, he thinks Thomas Boleyn is the coldest the coldest, slickest man he has ever seen. And this just feeds into that narrative of the Boleyns, this distasteful narrative. So I guess that was really what my aim was. I'm not even just uh, fighting against historical interpretations. I have to fight against yeah. these fictional interpretations yeah. that have become so prevalent. And so and popular. So influential. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Lauren. Now, you have two books um, which talk all about the Tudors. And with the first one inside the Tudor court, Henry VIII and his six wives, and that's all about the writings of the ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Okay, and then most recently, the untold story of Thomas and George Boleyn, and that's the Among the Wolves at Court. And that one is, that's out, both are out, aren't they? Yes, that's right. Great, so people can get those in any good bookshop or online. Absolutely. And I suppose the, the interesting thing about these two books is they're, Basically, uh, it's it's like opposing teams in the the soap opera that is the Tudor period. So Eustace Chapuis was, of course, a great defender of Catherine of Aragon, and then you have the Boleyns on the other side. So I, I like to think it's sort of the two two sides of the chessboard, if you will. Brilliant. Um, and where can people find you online? So do you have a website or do you have any I do. Media? I think uh, I'm trying to remember. Yes, it's, it's www.laurenmackay.co.uk. And there I have all of the events, so the, the different talks that I give and uh, upcoming books when I'm allowed to announce them. Oh, exciting. I know. <laughs> I'm under lock and key for a little while longer, but I have I have two projects coming up. Uh, but I am on Twitter as well. I, uh, I think it's uh, Re Regina Saba, Regina underscore Saba. Yep. Excellent. So people can people can find you pretty easily. Yes. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And Hopefully, you'll be on again talking about your secret projects. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.